Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. We're smack dab right in the middle of this super practical section of Romans. And really, Paul has spent a lot of time, the beginning of Romans, laying down the doctrine, why we believe what we believe, giving us all of the information. And now as we uh, make our way through this section, beginning in chapter 12, that shift that deals with practical living, we're putting all that information now to work, to, to the test, to use. And we've looked at, you know, how we're to live our lives in relationship to the Lord. Boy, we're to be sold out for him. We're to be surrendered. Uh, in body, in mind, and in will. We looked at how we are to live in relationship one towards another. Uh, As the church, concerning gifts, that we're not to think of ourselves as more highly than we should, but we're to esteem others more highly than ourselves. That, That we're to recognize that we all have giftings in the Lord. And that we all make up the body of Christ. All are important. All are uh, necessary. Uh, We looked at, you know, uh, our relationship uh, to the government. How are we to respond to the the governing authorities in our lives? Civil rulers. We looked at that on Sunday. That really we're to, to give them the honor and even the taxes that they're due. We're to walk in obedience to the government because the Lord has established the government. And when we rebel against the government, then we're rebelling against the Lord himself. And so we're to walk in obedience to the government to a point. We talked about this on Sunday morning. That when there comes that time when the law of the land is in conflict with the law of the Lord, well, then it's time to walk according to the law of the Lord, unapologetically, just like we saw Daniel do, just like we saw Peter do in Acts chapter 5 there. And so just, again, making our way through a very practical section of the Bible. Boy, how are we to live our lives as Christians? And now we are going to look this morning at how we are to live in relationship to our neighbors, that we're to love our neighbors even as ourselves. And we're going to see that that, 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 that statement of truth, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, boy, it carries with it some great significance because when we do that, when we love our neighbors as ourselves. It fulfills the entirety of the law, what Paul says. I'm getting ahead of myself here, though. So we are actually going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 13. That's where we are. So verse 8 of chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, uh, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Man, that's a big statement, that love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul, he says, owe no one anything but to love them. Owe no man nothing but to love them. Now, it's interesting because this section that we're moving into is primarily a section about love. Yeah, I mean, that, that's Paul's uh, theme. That's what he's driving towards is how we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And in doing so, we fulfill the law. But owe man, no, oh, no man nothing really has a, a financial connotation to it also. And there are great Bible teachers, Spurgeon being one, somebody I, I look up to greatly, who takes this passage and says, man, Christians should never be in debt ever under any circumstances. Now, 
I greatly admire Spurgeon, but I feel like he's wrong in this section. And, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, you know, there's great wisdom in, in not going into debt. Uh, absolutely, 100%. What does the Bible say about debt? It's a total drag. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. And it's so true. If any of you have ever been in great financial debt, you know the burden that that brings into your life, the stress that that brings into your life. And really, if you are bringing on uh, you know, unbiblical debt, and we'll talk about that in a minute, it can really even hinder uh, the work that you could be doing for the Lord. But does this mean that it's unbiblical to ever take out a loan ever, that, that we should never uh, borrow any money at all? Well, it doesn't. And the reason I can say that with great confidence is that there's other passages in Scripture that talk about kind of the parameters on what it looks like for a Christian to, to lend money, uh, in, meaning that there's another Christian, or in, in really in the Old Testament it's talking about the Jews, uh, borrowing and lending. So the Old Testament really has some pretty solid passages that we can look at concerning the borrowing and lending of money. So De Deuteronomy is one of those. Deuteronomy 23 says, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in uh, all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So going into the promised land, the Lord kind of set up some parameters. Hey, when you borrow from a brother, really when you lend to another brother, uh, don't charge them interest. Again, in Exodus, if you lend money to any of my people with, uh, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is uh, his cloak for his body. Uh, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries unto me, and so on and so forth. But the point of that is the, the beginning of that passage. So interest was prohibited in the, the lending of money. But borrowing is, is never prohibited. And this whole, uh, you know, parameters of lending and borrowing was really set out so that the poor could not be taken advantage of. Right? When your brother is in dire straits, when, when he is in need of food or basic necessities, hey, don't take advantage of the situation. Just help him out. Just lend him the money, right? But it was a loan, and he was to pay that money back. And so, uh, you know, loans weren't prohibited. Uh, it was the taking of interest that was uh, prohibited uh, when it comes to the poor. And they could lend to their pagan neighbors with all the interest they wanted, which I find uh, both comical and uh, interesting. Uh, but we're not to uh, really get into debt, right? So it's not a free pass. It's all right. Well, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't take out a loan, so let's go charge it up, right? I was doing a, a Bible study actually through the book of Romans with a group of college-age boys when I was in my 20s. And, uh, you know, our conversation skewed from Romans to the rapture and that Jesus is going to be coming back. His return is imminent, that the Lord is, and we can see, you know, just the times. You know, when you look at current events that, man, the birth pangs are getting closer and closer, and man, I look forward to seeing the Lord's return. I pray in my lifetime. But these boys, they said, you know what? The Lord is coming back soon. So you know what their kind of answer to life was? They were going to get a bunch of credit cards and charge them up because the rapture's coming, and they wouldn't have to, to pay them back. That was their whole plan in life. 
spoken like a true college-age boy, if I don't say so myself. But the idea is that we, we don't go out and, you know, charge up a bunch of debt because, you know, sin, or not sin, but uh, debt, it really is a drag. And the, the borrower becomes a slave of the lender. But there is nothing wrong with being a good borrower, uh, of practicing good uh, credit skills, if you will. Um, sadly, though, many people, especially in our culture, even Christians in our culture, there's such a, a pressure to have a status or to keep up or to have a, a certain car or a certain house or, or whatever that many of us go into debt uh, unnecessarily. And the Bible does warn uh, against that. And so, you know, as far as finances go, man, Hebrews 13, it tells us that we are to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. Boy, that is a good word. Keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. First Timothy 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Oh, it, it really is, that we ought to be uh, content. So at the end of the day, boy, what we borrow money for, it's our own personal prerogative, but be careful uh, about going into to debt unnecessarily because it really can be an anchor uh, around your neck. And by the way, Jesus promised us, didn't he, that all of the things that we need, the necessities, what do you say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Remember? Uh, and what are the all things that will be added unto you that Jesus is speaking about? The necessities. You know, where we're going to lay our head, where we're going to eat, what we're going to, to wear. Those things are taken care of for us. We need just trust the Lord for those. So uh, that is kind of the brief uh, explanation on this passage concerning finance. But really, just scaling back, that, that wasn't Paul's focus on this passage. His, his, past, his point wasn't, hey, you should never go in debt ever. His point was, hey, we are obligated to love one another. Uh, oh, man, nothing except for to love him. It's all about the obligation to love. That's what Paul's point is. And it's a segue, verse 8 is, between verse 7 and verse 9. So verse 7 talks all about how we owe a debt to the civil authorities, right? That's what that section ends with, that we are to uh, render uh, or pay taxes to whom taxes or, are due. We're to uh, pay uh, customs, same thing as taxes, really, uh, who customs are due. We're to give fear to who fear is due, that's the governing authorities, and honor to who honor is due, governing authorities. We're to give everybody what we owe them, what they are owed. Uh, and what is our debt to each other? What is our debt to our neighbor? We are to love one another. That is the debt. That is our obligation to love one another. And that obligation is unending. We, we can never, you know, you can pay off a loan. You can pay off a, a credit card debt. But we can never uh, be done with the obligation to love one another. Why? Why? Because Jesus loved us. That's why we are expected to love one another. That's why we are expected to love our neighbors. Because Jesus first loved us. First John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Think about the great love that has been poured upon you and me by Jesus. A love that we don't deserve, a love that we didn't earn, a love that is outside of our performance. It's just an unconditional love that God has for us. 
Even in the midst of our sin, the Bible says, while we were yet sinning, that Christ died for us. He loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. And in light of all that the Lord has done for us, that's where our love comes from, one to another, in the church and even to our neighbors. And we're going to see it extends outside of just the family of Christ, who is our neighbor. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we're to love because Christ loved us first. Because he's given us our Holy, his Holy Spirit. And that's the first attribute, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. We're to love. Not only that, but John also tells us in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you would also love one another. By this, uh, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Isn't that interesting? Uh, have you ever really just pondered that? Like, how is the world going to know that we are disciples of Jesus? How does the world know that we belong to the Lord? Well, it's not the way we talk. It's not the way we dress. It's not the way uh, we give. It's not the, you know, Bible knowledge that we have. It's not the eloquent prayers that we offer up in public. Boy, how does the world know that we belong to our love for one another? And sadly, that's one of the biggest beefs that the world has with the church. As they come into the church and everybody's backbiting and cranky one with another and arguing about the color of the chairs or whatever it is that church people argue about. We ought to love one another. And then Paul, he gets into uh, the commandments. Uh, he, he uses this as an example. He says, he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he begins to, to speak about uh, what law he is uh, talking about. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, and he lists some of them off. Really, the social aspect of the Ten Commandments, the ones that are horizontal between uh, person to person and not necessarily person to God. Those are dealt with in the beginning. Our relationship with the Lord is dealt with in the first commandments, and then our, uh, the commandments that, that follow are horizontal, person to person. So Paul says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So all of these uh, commandments that Paul lists off, adultery. You know, you won't break the law of adultery if you're walking in love. If you love your wife, if you love your husband, you will not go out on them. You will not cheat on them. Uh, you know, uh, you, you won't steal. If you love your friend, you won't steal uh, his wife. If you love a woman, you won't damage her by, you know, uh, crossing sexual lines with her that you shouldn't. Uh, this, man, do not commit adultery. If you love, you won't commit adultery. And it goes on down the line, murder. You cannot, at the same time, love somebody and murder them. I know, shocking. That, it's like this, it's gonna blow you away tonight. Really? Yeah, you can't love somebody while you're cutting their brake lines or putting cyanide in their coffee. It just doesn't work that way. You won't murder the people that you love. Uh, if you love somebody, you won't steal their stuff. If you love somebody, you won't lie about them. You won't lie to them. If you love them, you won't covet. You won't be jealous of what they have. You won't think, boy, they're undeserving of that, and I should have what they have. Uh, uh, it's just the way it works. You cannot simultaneously... Uh, love and break God's commandments at the same time. And that's what Paul is saying. And so he says, man, uh, all the commandments are summed up with this one. All the commandments 
are summed up with the one. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that's exactly what Jesus said, really, there in Matthew 22. Jesus said, the law and the prophets hang on this. That is all the Bible, all the scripture that they had, all of the Old Testament, they hang on this. Love uh, the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that fulfills all of the law. And so that really begs the question then, right? If we fulfill the law by loving our neighbor, then who is our neighbor? And that's exactly what one of the lawyers in Jesus' day asked Jesus. Uh, really uh, trying to, to, to trip Jesus up. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. Uh, and he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and he said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of this man, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So this encounter that Jesus has with this lawyer, this expert in the law, he was one who was trying to justify his life and say, Boy, I, I've kept the law. I've, uh, I've loved my neighbor as myself. But, but just to clarify, who is my neighbor? And you see what he was trying to do there. He was trying to find a loophole, right, in saying, Well, I've loved my neighbor. That is those who are close to me my fellow Jew, my family, my actual neighbor, those people that I like and love, boy, I, I, I've loved them. But who is our neighbor actually? And Jesus gives this example of who a neighbor really is. And so uh, he just tells a story. The dude is on his way from Jericho up to Jericho. was it? From Jericho to Jerusalem? Is that what it said? He was on his way from, uh, yeah, from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, which was a notorious uh, road to travel. It was really, uh, thieves, it, they would always hang out. It was known they would hang out and rob people. This man is on his way, and he gets mugged, and he's left for dead. And so who stumbles upon him first? A priest. You think if anybody would have compassion and love on somebody who had been beat up and mugged, it would be a priest. But the priest is like, whoop, I'm crossing the street. Didn't see that, you know. We're all guilty of that. Before you're too hard on the priest, we have all looked the other way when we should have helped then the Levite, again, same. Uh, Levites were the tribes of uh, the tribe where the priests came from. Uh, they served in the temple. They knew better as well. And the Levite looks away. Then the Samaritan. Right now, 
In our vernacular, we say, oh, the good Samaritan, right? It's synonymous with being a person who does good deeds. And this is why, this story. But the Samaritans in Jesus' day, it was not synonymous with the person who did good deeds. A Samaritan in Jesus' day was synonymous with what they would call a half-breed. The Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with the nations round about. And so the Jews looked down on the Samaritans and actually hated the Samaritans because of the way that they didn't practice the law completely. But Jesus uses the Samaritans and said he was the example. And why was he the example? Because he didn't care what was going on. You notice that the, the, the passage doesn't tell us the, you know, the, the race of the guy who was beat up. We don't know if he was a Jew if he was a Gentile, if he was a Samaritan. And that's the point. It doesn't matter. The Samaritan stopped and helped. That somebody who was a total stranger, I was, and that's who our neighbor is. That's what it looks like. That's how we're to behave. We're to have compassion. Not just on those who are close to us, but our neighbor uh, is anybody that we interact with, anybody who is in uh, need. And Paul says, man, love your neighbor, anybody really, as yourself. And when we do, love does no harm. And love is the fulfillment of the law. The, 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 that love, it fulfills the law completely. Whatever the commandment given to us by God, when you follow it to its end, again, you cannot at the same time love and break that commandment given by God. And when we practice love, well, there's no need for any other law because love covers it all. And, and that's the whole point. Right? And, you know, if we love others, we won't sin against them. Uh, and that's just the, the truth of the matter. And so when you look at the brokenness of our community even, of our culture, of our world, it all stems from people not loving. That's the heart of it. At the heart of every matter, it's a matter of the heart. And the issues that we deal with are a matter of the heart. Our sin problem really is a heart problem. And so Paul says, man, if we love, boy, we fulfilled the law. Now, Paul is not throwing out the law. Right? Paul has already gone to great lengths to really deal with our relationship to the law. He, he took a good portion of chapter 7 uh, dealing with that topic. That the law, it has no power over us because we're dead to the law. Right? We're dead uh, to self. We died with Jesus. We identified with the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, the law can't rule over a dead man. That was Paul's whole point. Uh, that we're dead to self, but we're alive in Christ. See, we identified with the death of Jesus, but then we identified with the resurrection of Jesus, and we're to go forth and walk in newness of life, really in Christ, and that's how we are. We are in Christ now. Uh, we identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection and, and so, you know, we're no longer bound to the law. We're found in Christ. And Jesus, well, what did Jesus say about the law? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And how did Jesus fulfill the law? Jesus fulfilled the law in its requirements. What are the requirements of the law? Man, a perfect life in thought and in deed from birth to death. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus uh, fulfilled the penalty of the law. That is the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God upon himself for our sin. So Jesus fulfilled the law. We are hidden in him. We're no longer bound to the law, right? We're dead to the law. We're in Jesus. He fulfilled it. That's it. Paul deals with all of that in chapter 7. So he's not throwing out the law, but what is the point? 
See, when we begin to say, oh, well, you know, the law, we're not bound to the law. Uh, the law has nothing over us, and it doesn't. Then how are we to live our lives? Are we to just live our lives willy-nilly and do whatever we want? And if something tickles our fancy, we should run into it headlong with all we have, even though it's sinful? Of course not. Of course not. How should we live our lives? We should live our lives still according to God's word, but not to earn salvation, right? And that's the key point. It's not to earn salvation, but it's because we have been saved. And what does that look like? What does that look like to live according to God's word? And that's it's bringing us around full circle, right? It, it looks like we love. We walk this life out in loving one another. And what does love look like? Or we talked about, so we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, but what does that mean? What does love look like? And in the Bible, there's several different types of love. See, in the English language, boy, we just say, I love this. I can say it with the same word love, I love ice cream. I love my dog. I love my wife. Right? But the love that I have for my wife is way more than the love that I have for ice cream. Right? I don't care how good the ice cream is. She's watching from home, so that was for, for her. Uh, but there's different uh, words for love in the Greek, uh, as where we only have the one. So there, in the Greek, there's eros, which is where we get our word for uh, erotic love. There's uh, phileo, which is uh, a brotherly love, Philadelphia. Then there's storge, which is family love, like you love your grandma, grandma or your aunt or your uncle or your cousins. And then there's the kind of love that Paul's talking about, the love that you're probably familiar with, and that is agape. And agape is the kind of love that God has for us. It's the love we're to have for one another. And agape is an unconditional love. It's a love that is not based on performance. It's a love that is, is not an emotion. It's a love that is a choice. And that is the love that Paul is talking about. And it's the, the love that he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can turn there, uh, or I can read it to you. But 1 Corinthians 13, it's, it's, the, it's the love chapter in the Bible. It describes what this agape is all about. And it says in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Those are pretty harsh. I mean, that's a, a harsh reality. Boy, you could be the most spiritual individual on the planet. You could have all understanding. Boy, but if you don't have love, you're just a, 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 a crashing symbol. And what an obnoxious noise a symbol is. If you guys, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. When the kids get a hold of the drum set after church, I don't know why they're magnetically drawn to the symbols. That's all you are without love. You might have all the information right, but without love, you're just noise. Boy, you might understand prophecy, have faith and move mountains, but without love, you're nothing. Boy, you give your body to be burned, but without love, it's all a loss. And so Paul is establishing the importance of love. And then he begins to describe this agape. Love suffers long. It's patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It does not seek its own. 
It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, and it endures all things. You say, wow, that's a tall order. That's a tall order for me, right? To, to love somebody in that manner, unconditionally, like 1 Corinthians 13 describes it, boy, you say, man, Lord, I don't have it in me. And that's the point, we don't. We need the Lord in order to love the way that Paul is calling us to love. We need the Lord and the Holy Spirit to love in the manner that the Bible is calling us to love. And we'll get to that point. But this new law of love, that's what Paul is saying. And the law of love trumps all other laws. The problem with this uh, law of love that Paul is laying out for us uh, is that we use it now in our current day to excuse uh, however we want to live. We say we're just going to love. And anything we do under the guise of love now is acceptable. And so all manner of sin now is accepted under the, the law of love. Now, here's the thing. And don't get me wrong. We come to the Lord just as we are. All wrestling with our sin. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or what you struggle with. We can be lost in addiction or sexual perversity, unforgiveness, hate, whatever it is. And when we turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe and confess, man, we're saved. But here's the thing. God doesn't save you. He doesn't set you free to leave you where you are. He doesn't set you free and, and, and save you to say, now continue on in your sin in the name of love, and it's all good. No, the Lord saves us to make us more like him, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and he brings conviction, and he, he changes our hearts. But see, this idea that we can be happy Christians... Uh, you know, just uh, that we can be happy Christians and live really the way that we want it, it, it is not true. This idea that we can be happy Christians while living a life of sexual immorality or sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend, it, it's not true. The idea that we can be uh, happy Christians uh, fulfilling the law of love while we uh, are uh, embracing a life filled with addiction that we can be happy Christians who are fulfilling the law of love uh, while we are engaged in uh, homosexual lifestyle. All these things. And really, that's what the church does now. That under the law of love, we accept all manner of, of sin. Uh, but it's impossible. You cannot simultaneously break God's law and walk in love. And that's what Paul is saying. If you truly love your girlfriend... Right? You would not do something that would damage her. And, uh, you know, we live in a culture where, you know, marriage is on the decline and living together is on the rise amongst young adults. We say, well, what's the point of getting married? We're just going to live together and we're going to sleep together. And even in the church. And here's the thing. Young man, do not do something that will damage that young lady if you love her. Same thing goes, you know, well, uh, really where this uh, idea of, Accepting all manner of sin in the church under the law of love really comes into play is in the homosexual lifestyle. And we say, well, you know, as long as it's love, then it's okay. But again, if you love that individual, you would not engage in an activity with them that will bring them harm spiritually, physically, eternally. Because you cannot love and break God's law at the same time. It's just the reality. And so this 
heretical movement within the church that says, man, you just love and basically do whatever you want. It's just that. It's a heretical movement. It's not true. And what is meant by love is do what feels good, right? And now in certain circles of the church, love has become synonymous with acceptance, and if you're going to love somebody, you just have to accept them for where they are. Now, I'm not saying you browbeat somebody for where they are. Like I said, we all come to the Lord in different places. But we don't just say, oh, man, under the guise of love, it's all good. Just run as hard as you can towards sin, and everything's going to be all right. Because that's a lie. And that's not loving. True love says the hard thing. True love brings uh, correction. Uh, a love that says, man, just... Just do whatever feels right is not true love because it leaves people lost in their sins. And that's the hard reality. If I was dying of cancer and my doctor didn't want to hurt my feelings and tell me the truth, well, what kind of doctor would he be? He'd be a terrible doctor. If I was driving down a dirt road and I was heading for a cliff and you knew it, but you're like, oh, man, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to hurt his, his pride. And that's really, when we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, what we're saying is we don't want to hurt their pride. And we say, oh, well, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. What kind of friend would you be if you let another friend drive off a cliff? And yet we apply that same logic when it comes to things that are eternal. We say, ah, oh, well, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings or their pride. And it's interesting to me that their symbol is pride. We're going to hold on to our pride. No, that's not what the, the, this whole thing is talking about. But that's what it's been twisted into, and you have to understand that. Uh, it, it's been twisted around. Uh, it's not loving to say nothing. It's loving to say something. Uh, we need people to come alongside of us and speak truth into our lives. And, you know, I'd like to point out that when Paul is describing love, he says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Don't forget that. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So this idea that we can just be uh, happy Christians while engaged in all sorts of immorality, it, it really is not true, and it's going to uh, lead us into a bad place. And so now Paul, uh, continuing on, uh, he gets into this uh, after, you know, we're to love our neighbors. How are we to love our neighbors? Really with the sense of urgency. Verse 11 says, and do this knowing the time. So do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Knowing the time, what do you mean knowing the time? Knowing the season, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we are to do these things, what? Love, with a sense of urgency, understanding uh, the season. And the season meaning that, man, the Lord could come at any time. Uh, we can see the signs. We can see the seasons. We know that Christ's return is imminent for sure. But when we see these things begin to take place, know that, boy, it's getting close. And, uh, you know, we're not going to go through all of the current events tonight and, and see, well, look at this and how it lines up with Scripture. But just understand this, that if you just take a snapshot of the last 50, 60 years and you begin to unpack Bible prophecy on the, the, the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, 
boy, you'll be blown away at how just even uh, half a decade ago, it wasn't possible. And theologians were just scratching their head. How is this all going to fit together? And now all these pieces, they're just, bam, they're right in front of us, fitting together perfectly, just like Scripture said it would. In light of that, in light of the season, right? No man knows the day or the hour, but we know the season. And we look around and see the season. What should our response be? Boy, to love all the more. Genuinely, truthfully, honestly, biblically, agape. Uh, uh, because again, the Lord is coming. And we know that he's coming. And we're to spend our lives really uh, looking for the return of the Lord. That, that, that's what Paul's talking about. When he says, you know, uh, now is the time. Knowing the time. That it's high time. To wake out of the sleep that the Lord is coming. Uh, Titus chapter 2 says that we are to be looking for the, our blessed hope. The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That the Lord is going to come for us, for his church. And how do we want to be found when he comes? Do we want to be doing our own thing? Do we want to be pursuing our own uh, agendas and our own lusts? And, uh, or do we want to be chasing after him. Uh, you know, the, the disciples understood uh, that Jesus, that he was coming, and they were about his business, and we are to be about his business. We're to be ready. Jesus told uh, a parable there in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, remember? And there was the call of the bridegroom, and, and, and they all went and this is all you have to kind of understand how a Jewish wedding goes together. Like in our modern wedding, boy, it's all very planned out. Everybody knows what's going on. There's a wedding planner and a schedule, and everybody sticks to the schedule. Yeah, right, the bride never sticks to the schedule. I'm just telling you the truth. The bride never sticks to the schedule. Anyways, uh, in a Jewish wedding, boy, it was all on the groom. And this, this, this wedding would kick off when nobody really knew at the sound of Trump, the groom would come. And these... Ten virgins or maidens were likely, uh, you know, uh, bridesmaids. And they get their lamps. They're ready. They go to the procession. But as they go to the wedding, right, the bridegroom doesn't show up on cue like they expected. And so half of the, the maidens, they're not ready. It's like, ah, is he coming? Is he not? They don't have enough, uh, you know, oil for their lamp. And so when the bridegroom really shows up, boy, they don't have enough oil. They're ill-prepared, and now they're scrambling. Hey, can we borrow some of your oil? No, you can't borrow some of our oil. We need it. We might miss the bridegroom. And the whole point of the parable is that we as Christians are not to be caught off guard. We're not to be like the, the wicked servant there in Matthew 24 who says, man, my Lord delays his coming. How many times have you heard that? Boy, it just irritates the living daylights out of me when I talk to Christians and they're like, boy, you know, we've been predicting Jesus coming back from the early church and whatever. Hey, that's not what the Bible says we're to live our lives like. The Bible says that's how the wicked servant lives his life. But we're to be ready for the return of the Lord. And if you knew, like remember when you were kids and your parents were gone and you were home alone, especially when it was like fresh, you're like, yeah, we've got freedom. And you and your siblings, you're like, party, we're popping popcorn, we're eating dinner on the couch, this is great. And then the ring comes, mom and dad are coming. Woo, holy cow, you are, you're getting ready. Because you know mom and dad are coming, you want to be found as good stewards. It's the same thing, we know the Lord is coming. And we want to be found as good stewards when the Lord shows up. And so Paul, here in this last section, he tells us, man, wake up, gear up, and clean up. Right? Wake up. Man, don't be found 
uh, sleeping. Don't be found like the evil servant saying, oh man, the Lord delays his coming. We're just gonna uh, not, not even worry about it. No, no. Be looking for the Lord to, to, to return. Be about his business. We're also to cast off the works uh, 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 of darkness. Paul says, man, cast off the, the works of darkness and put on right, the armor of light. So we're to wake up, we're to be ready, we're to understand what season it is that the, the night is ending, that day is approaching, and then we are to uh, gear up, we're to put on the armor of light. Now Paul goes into what it looks like to gear up in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll just read through it briefly. It's the armor of God. It's a passage that we're familiar with uh, since uh, we've been in Sunday school. Ephesians, beginning in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance, supplication for all saints. So we're to gear up. And the point is, is that we are to recognize that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. I know that for some reason that's uncomfortable for us as Christians in this modern day, the, the spiritual realm, and I don't understand why, it's become uncomfortable for us. But there is a, a realm that is spiritual that is every bit and arguably more real than the reality that we're living in now because this reality is temporal and the spiritual realm is eternal. And in that eternal realm, man, we are engaged in spiritual battle. We're not to to kind of fuddle through life like everything is represented in what we can see and touch and taste and, and feel. There's a whole nother realm and there's a spiritual battle going on and we need to be geared up. We are soldiers in a conflict and we need to be equipped and alert. And, and it's important for us to, to recognize that because if we don't, then we're just like foolish kids skipping through a minefield, uh, oblivious to the realities that we are in. And so Paul says, man, uh, wake up. Man, oh, be aware of the times. Gear up. Recognize that you're in a, a, a battle. And then clean up. In verse 13, he, he tells us that, that we are to, to walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we're to clean up. We're not to walk in those lusts of the carnal nature. And herein lies the beef. How is that, though? Because even Paul said, man, those things that I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So how is it that we clean up? Right? We get the wake up. All right. Man, the Lord's coming. We get the gear up. Okay, we're in a spiritual battle. But it's the cleanup that seems to trip us up so often. And here's the, the thing. You can't separate the cleanup from the putting on. You can't separate the cleaning up from putting on uh, Jesus. Uh, all the things that we've talked about in this whole section, beginning in uh, the beginning of chapter 12, this practical Christian life. Again, I want to remind you 
that these are not things that we do in and of ourselves. It's not our own effort. If, if we spend all of our lives saying, boy, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know what we're going to do? The thing that we tried not to do. But rather, we are to put on Jesus. We're to recognize that if we're going to walk out a, a Christian life that is pleasing to the Lord, that we're going to need to walk in his strength. We're going to have to live a life that's surrendered to him, connected to him, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. Again, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things don't come naturally to our carnal natures. But it's when we're surrendered and connected and when we put on the Lord. How do we do those things? Boy, in prayer. Spending time in his word. Paul says, man, make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord. Make no provision for the flesh. You are what you eat. Right? There's a spiritual realm and a physical realm, and we are citizens of both. There's this duality to our nature. And if we spend our days feeding the lusts of the flesh, don't be surprised when your fleshly man is strong. Instead, spend your days feeding your spiritual man, that he might be the stronger of your natures. Uh, Paul says, man, don't give your carnal nature opportunity. Man, if you struggle with alcoholism, do not keep beer in the fridge. Do not keep whiskey in the cupboard. Don't go to parties where people drink socially. It's okay. They'll get over it. I'm telling you, uh, if you struggle with lust, be mindful of where your eyes wander in this world and in the cyber world as well. And take the appropriate precautions. If you need to set up accountability, if you need to get a flip phone, if you need to deal with it, don't give no occasion to the flesh because your flesh is looking for an opportunity to sin. And if we feed it, if we give it opportunity, boy, it's in trouble. But stay from the place of temptation. Uh, and again, those two things, they go hand in hand. The more I put on Jesus, the more I see sin for what it is. The more that I spend time with the Lord, the less pull sin has on me. The more I grow in the Lord, the dimmer the things of this world become. It's just a reality. The stronger I get spiritually, man, the more I'm connected to the Lord. In my own efforts, in our own efforts, we're in big trouble. We can't walk out the Christian life in our own efforts. You try to love your neighbor like yourself in your own carnal nature, boy, you're going to be super disappointed, just like I am when I try to live out the Christian life in my own efforts. But by the Lord's strength, that is where we find victory. Because, again, victory is already won. The battle is over. The war is won. Jesus won, and we are in him. And we need to just walk in that and trust him. And so, man, uh, again, what another practical word from, from Paul. And how do we deal with our neighbors, with those we are in relationship with, those who we come in contact with? And we're to love them. We're to love them uh, like we love ourselves. To love them. Uh, and, and when we do, we fulfill the law. But in order to do that, walk out anything in this Christian life, man, remember, we're only going to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we try to do it in our own flesh, we're just going to find ourselves uh, condemning ourselves and being bummed out and walking in failure. Man, let us be as, uh, you know, Paul tells us to be. 
Let us wake up, man. Let us realize where we're living in the end days. Let us clean up, man. Let's not give any occasion uh, to the flesh. Let us gear up. Let's put on the full armor of God. Trust the Lord in all of it. Amen? Amen. So, Lord, again, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love. Lord, to love like you've loved us. To love unconditionally. Lord, to to have the compassion and the heart that, that you had. Lord, help us to not fall into the worldly definition of love that's crept into the church. But also love, Lord, help us not to be those who are, are hardened. Lord, and use that as an excuse to not love the way that you've called us to love. And again, it doesn't come naturally to us, Lord. But I pray that as we walk with you, as we're surrendered to you, Lord, as we spend time with you, Lord, that we would just be so connected to you that the power of your spirit would flow through us and that we would love in the way that you've called us to, again, not in our own efforts or strengths, that we wouldn't live out this Christian life in our own efforts and own strengths, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given us. And we thank you so much for that, Lord, that you've left us not as orphans, But Lord, you've left your comforter and your helper to lead us and direct us and guide us and teach us. Only let us be a people, Lord, who have an ear to hear and a surrendered will that you would direct us. And as we go our way, I pray that people would look upon us and that they would know that we are your disciples. Again, not because we know your scriptures or can pray eloquently or anything else, Lord, but that they would know us by our love one for another, our love for our neighbors. And we can do that, Lord, because you first loved us. So help us to walk in all that you have for us, not to earn your love, but because you love us already. Thank you, Lord, again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.